Coming up on this week's show, the Wii eShop returns. The coolest watch we've ever seen. And we chat with artist Andy Crawshaw, who worked on classics like Alien Hominid. podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, happy birthday to the Apple Macintosh. The Mac celebrated its 40th birthday this week. And check out the secret history of Mac gaming. Now, if you thought the Mac is not a gaming platform, this book tells the story of the unlikely gaming hero that changed the industry. You can check out that book and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 413, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast. Of course, a show that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age, as we like to call it, of video games and technology. And of course, brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days and brings you a veteran of the industry onto the show in the second half to basically tell us their story. And that's what we like to do in this podcast, isn't it? Capture the history of this industry that we love so much. Capture the history, have a chat with the devs, and also just kind of have a chat about the news as well, which is a section that I love. But, you know, just kind of hanging out, a couple of mates chatting, giving our opinions on a few things. Um, yeah, man. Eight years in as well. Celebrating yeah. our birthday last week, didn't we? <laughs> Which is nuts. And yeah, obviously, yeah. really sad that Ravi can't join us this week. I mean, he's got mm. some family issues, but, you know, real life does get in the way sometimes, you know, having done the show every week for eight years, like you said. Uh, but he is going to be joining us in the second half of the podcast um, for the interview. So we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And uh, hopefully be all right for the, the patrons hangout that's coming up this weekend as well. Because it is the end of January, which uh, I don't know about you. It feels like about, it's like, what, January the 92nd today, I think? Yeah, it's crawling through January, aren't we? Uh, crawling to payday, crawling yep. from the expense of Christmas, but most excitedly crawling <laughs> to our next Patreon hangout. It feels like we did it a bit early in December because uh, yeah. obviously Christmas and New Year. So it feels like ages since we did the last hangout. So I'm really excited to do this Sunday uh, with the gang and uh, you know just kind of chat with everybody and probably kind of catch up with what everybody got for Christmas, what retro God, yeah. goodies and stuff we all got. Um, Which feels really an eternity ago now, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels so long ago. But also I'm really excited this weekend. We are recording our latest After Hours, which uh, is going to be titled, I Can't Believe You've Never Played. For people that have maybe just joined us recently, the After Hours is like a separate show that we do just for mm. our patrons. We do one of these a month. I think we've got about, this would be episode 39 Yep. that we're recording this weekend. So if you join us on Patreon, now's a very good time to do it. Uh, join us a gold member. Um, you'll get all the back episodes of that unlocked as well. Of course, everyone gets invited to the Hangout that's coming up on Sunday too. And yeah, this one, I think um, it's something I've wanted to do for a while. Yeah. In a way though, I'm kind of embarrassed about it because this is showing up some serious holes in our gaming history. There is some big holes in our gaming history, uh, especially for me and you. Ravi seemed to have a big, a bit of a broader gaming history than both of us yeah. but it kind of makes sense what we're playing i'm not going to say what we're playing uh we've both we've all got four games to go away and play and kind of then come back and give our thoughts on and stuff and mine is very much a lot of sixth gen kind of like xbox and pc games which mm. would make sense because i had a nintendo and my brother had a playstation and then with you yours is a lot of 8-bit and 16-bit nintendo stuff isn't it so it, yeah it, 
it makes sense because it's the consoles that we didn't have kind of growing up or we missed. Uh, and then Ravi's is a little bit more all over the place because of literally like so many games. I'd be like, Ravi, you ever played Final Fantasy? And he's like, yep, completed seven. And I'm like, all right, okay. What yeah. about Resident <laughs> Evil? And he's like, yep, done them all. <laughs> like, yeah. like, oh, <laughs> so Ravi's are a little bit more, more all over the place. But yeah, really looking forward to hearing your guys' thoughts on some of these games. Yeah, and I've actually, it's kind of been my, um, I did mention it, I think, last year, that that was kind of one of my New Year's resolutions to mm, finally yeah. play some of these. Kind of what feel like, you know, massive gaps in my gaming history, because it's, uh, even though, I mean, I grew up as a, a computer kid, so, you know, we had Commodore 8-bit machines and the Amiga, obviously, which I've talked about quite a bit. We did get a Mega Drive in around 92, 93. My brother got one. So I'm kind of familiar with, you know, the, the 16-bit Sega stuff. I had a friend who had a, a SNES, but, I mean, you know, stuff like the NES is yeah. to me like just like a real black spot in my history. I'm like, yeah, there's so much on that system that I just have never played. And yeah. when people are talking about it, I like stuff like the Hangout. I'm like, I can't believe I haven't actually played that one. I'll keep quiet here. <laughs> so I'm hoping that now I can contribute to those conversations, having played some of these iconic titles that so far we haven't. And because uh, it's weird, I was reading a, an article actually that popped up on my social timeline yesterday. It was basically a retrospective of gaming in 2004, Right. And that to me is kind of another kind of time in gaming that I missed out on because I did, uh, I've talked about it before, my kind of gaming wilderness years mm. where, you know, when I was at university and just after, I mean, I kind of got out of gaming from around, I'd say about 99 to around 2006. Yeah. So there is, you know, that, that kind of first half of the 2000s as well that, you know, yeah. could potentially be more uh, more fodder for a second episode yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. uh, with that as well. So it's uh, going to be an interesting one. So if you join us on Patreon uh, right now, you'll get invited to the Hangout this weekend. And uh, Gold Members and Above will also get the latest episode and all previous 38 of the After Hours. Now, of course, it is business as usual. We are going to be bringing it up to speed on what's been happening in the news on the retro scene in just a moment. And uh, Ravi's going to be here in the second half of the show with an incredible interview with Andy Crawshaw. Now, again, this is, like I said, this is, you know, <laughs> right in my gaming wilderness years, a game called Alien Hominid that came out back in, I think it was around 2005, but this is actually one that I've played on the okay. original Xbox, you know, because I did that thing that a lot of people did, you know, when kind of prices were really low. Yeah. I think I got my original Xbox from GameStation back yeah. in around 2011. I got it for like £15. Yeah. And the games were about two or three quid each. Yeah. So Alien Hominid is one that I picked up. I mean, obviously you don't yeah. get those prices anymore. But have you played it before? It's quite a quirky little game. I Alien haven't. Hominid. I haven't played Alien Hominid, but I know it's the little yellow alien um, yeah. and it's all to do with news, news grounds. Um, so I'm excited to hear about that. And also, um, I'm really excited to listen to this because he was also a developer on a game called Excalibur 2555 AD, mm. which I was like, what? game's that and i gave it a google and i was like oh my god me and my sister used to play this on the ps1 so that's really kind of unlocked like a forgotten memory for me uh, which is sometimes what the show is all about yeah. um so i'm really looking looking forward to kind of hearing the story of that and his work on that um and ravi always you know gets the get, gets the inside scoop on these interviews so yeah really really looking forward to it and a little bit more modern but he also worked on a game called everybody's gone to the rapture Oh yeah, um, which we had to talk about as well. I mean, that—that that is. I don't know if you played that before in the. You know, I know you're not a PlayStation gamer much, but um, this was like you know, really beautiful game. Came out in 2015, it's a little bit modern by our standards, yeah, but yeah. it's actually it's set in the 80s, so there is that yeah. kind of side to it. Um, set in a deserted village in oh, England cool. back in 1984, and it's just such an atmospheric game as well. Like you know, going through that in English countryside 
in the middle of summer, completely abandoned. You've got to kind of piece together the story of kind of what's happened to everybody um, who's gone to the rapture, obviously. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really interesting chat with Andy Crawshaw, our special guest of Tempest Software. He's coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, before that, plenty of new stories to sink our teeth into this week. And it has been everywhere that, of course, Nintendo are rapidly closing down their services for their retro systems, you know, which mm-hmm. to me still feels weird that we're calling the Wii and the 3DS retro now, but, you know, that's where we are. Uh, but it turns out that fans have come to the rescue and actually are reviving the Wii store. Yeah, so the Wii eShop was closed in 2019. The yeah. Wii U one was a little bit later. I want to say last year, maybe 2022 now, 2023. But yeah, the Wii Shop, 2019. And like you say, it's weird talking about the Wii, but it came out in 2006. So it's it's 18 years old now. Yeah, getting on. Um, and it's weird because it's like, oh, general rule as we go back 15 years, like the kind of 15 years is retro. And it's like when we started, you know, when we start doing the podcast, that would have been like the late 90s, early 2000s. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, 2006. We'd be like, is PS2 retro yet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now we're like, yeah, the Wii shop. Yeah. But yeah. This is really cool. So obviously the Wii shop's been gone, you know, four years now. Um, oh, the Wii shop. F- the, sorry, the Wii shop. Yeah. yeah. They are now, uh, there's reports coming in that the re-shop, so spelled R-I-I shop, is now in public beta, which is essentially a replacement for the yeah. Wii shop. Um, and it's it, it's it can only be experienced on homebrew Wiis, which, you know, we spoke about before the Wii. The, the Wii is a very hacked system. A lot of people have hacked. The Even Wii. I've modded my Wii. That's yeah, how easy it is. yeah, exactly. Um, so it can only be done on the uh, homebrew ready consoles, hacked consoles. Um, but essentially, it allows you to go on the Wii Shop. But it isn't the original Wii Shop. It looks like the Wii Shop. How many times can I say that in one sentence? Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, essentially a website they have made. Uh, called the reshop uh, but there is apps on there to download with fake Wii points because if you remember rightly the eShop it was all Nintendo points it wasn't actual currency you would buy like a thousand points and then an NES game would cost 500 or eight. yeah it's the same on the Switch I mean it's still yeah. the same today yeah. Yeah, so basically the same you, on Switch, yeah. you can pay you know if you buy a game that's 15 quid you can just put 15 quid in or you can put like 20 in and just you know use 15 of that to buy yeah. the game so yeah it works the same yeah 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 so it works the same but it's all for free and they have said that it will never cost anything. You know, it'll always be free. And from the video that they've released, you know, there's a load of apps on there. Um, Kirby TV channel, uh, the Wii U transfer tool, Wii Fit body check channel, stuff like that. All stuff that, all stuff what was, you know, was real and was on there. Some people are reporting that some of the apps are working. Some people are reporting that some of the apps aren't working. As they say, it is in a beta stage at the moment, but it is fun to see. Yeah, and I think it's important as well for preservation because, mm. um, I mean, there are, I mean, obviously it's not quite the same, but one system I can think of that I've done this on in, in recent years and installed like a homebrew store on is, uh, don't laugh, the Ouya. Oh, yeah. Uh, which obviously <laughs> was famously abandoned um, yeah. when that all kind of went south. And there was no way of playing it originally because it had to, when you turn the Ouya on, it had to connect to the Ouya servers yeah, and obviously when they shut those down, it just wouldn't operate at all. And obviously, 
you know, there are some Ouya fans out there, believe it or not, who uh, came to the rescue and actually not only restored like a way to play them, you know, you, you just edit a file and point it to a new server, but also re-implemented the store on there as well in a similar way to this, you know, with kind of fake money points and stuff. Mm. And basically means that, you know, all the games that they could restore are available to download for free now. And I think there are, you know, equivalents on like the, the PS3 and the Vita and PSP and stuff like that as well. So I think it's, um, some people are kind of saying Nintendo is it safe to do with them? Are they going to come along and shut this down in like the next couple of days? I've got a feeling they probably won't because I, th- I don't think they care all that much about the Wii anymore. Yeah, I don't know. Like you say, they don't they don't seem to care too much about the Wii. Definitely kind of don't care about the Wii U, do they? So Yeah, I think they'd yeah. rather forget the Wii U ever existed, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I think this is, you know, in, in terms of preservation, these are the only ways that a lot of these kind of digital games are going to be available in the future. Um, and it is, it's kind of up to the fans to do it, isn't it? Otherwise all these games are lost forever. Yeah. So yeah, I think, exactly. you know, in terms of that, it's really cool as well, but you know, you just got to kind of wait 18 years and, you know, get a console then, then you've got a free library of games. Yeah, so if, exactly. if you're patient, you know, it's a, it's a good way to get games for free. <laughs> so uh, like you said, in beta at the moment, um, if you have got a modded Wii, which uh, if not, there are plenty of videos on how to do that. Um, you literally just copy this over to uh, an SD card and then you can download all your, your games onto that as well. So I'll put the video and the article in our show notes if you want to keep an eye on that story. And we do love talking about these, don't we? These kind of uh, modern day console. Seems like there's a lot of handhelds recently that are kind of clones or ways to play classic handheld games. And this one is called the Z Pocket Game Bubble. And they're calling this the modern day Sega Game Gear. This is interesting. So there is, like you've just said it there, there is a lot of these handhelds coming out. And, you know, they, they're all sporting the same cheap, you know, chipsets. Um, or very similar chipsets. This one's got the Rock Chip uh, RK3566 CPU, which some of the others we've discussed have got the same chipset. You know, these they're, they're wicked. I really like these. You know, I, I think, you know, when we first started doing the show, or even before the show, you would see these little handheld retro game, you know, retro game players that had come out, and they weren't very reliable. But And they always looked like the original Game Boy, didn't they? Yeah, they always <laughs> the looked like the original Game Boy or some sort of kind of like weird sega kind of thing um and now they come out and they're really reliable you know they're not as cheap as they used to be they are usually you know 100 pound plus um but they they work they make i know that sounds silly but they actually work you know they're reliable but the reason i wanted to kind of talk about this one because there is a lot coming out there's one every week is it's a sega game gear one now don't get me wrong it plays all the other consoles that these handhelds tend to play you know kind of 8-bit, 16-bit. They usually say they can play PlayStation and, you know, N64 games as well. That's always so, hit or miss, isn't it? I find. <laughs> always, yeah, always hit or miss, that is. But this one is aimed for Game Game Gear fans because it looks like a Game Gear. Like, there is no, like, shame in, in there. Like, it is the shape of a Game Gear. It's probably about, what, half the size of a Game Gear, would you say? Yeah, Maybe that looks two, about that from the images. About two-thirds the size of it. Comes in several different colours by the looks of things, but the black one, definitely Game Gear all the way. Obviously, it's got the thumbsticks on there. It's got the A, B, X, and Y rather than, you know, just a couple of buttons. How many buttons does Game Gear have? Is it three? Is it A, B, C? Two buttons, there you go. You know, two buttons, there we go. There's there's a Christmas quiz question for later in the year. There we go. We'll save that one for next year, (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the year. You know, and like I say, 3.5-inch screen on here. 
does all singing, all dancing, you know, 640 by 480 pixels. What what do you think of this, Dan? Do you think we've got too many of these or do you think keep them coming, shape them like every different handheld we've ever had? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've never been a massive handheld gamer, if mm. I'm honest. I mean, I have got an Atari Lynx yeah. and uh, a Game Gear that's not very well at the moment. I've uh, you know been trying to get that recap for a while. Mm. And uh, I hear there are nightmares of recaps. So everyone I ask is like, oh, when I've got a quiet week, I'll do it. You know, because yeah. no one likes working on them. Um, and even my Switch, you know, I've talked about it on the podcast before, that I generally play that in docked mode yeah. on the TV, you know, if, if I'm not out and about or whatever. So in terms of my handheld history, I mean, I've always been more of a kind of in front of the TV gamer. But um I, I mean, I kind of see the the appeal for this because it's like, again, like you said, I mean, these are pretty much all commodity hardware that can play the same kind of games. But really, it's down to creating that nostalgia by having a similar form factor to a system that you owned back in the day, isn't it? So the fact yeah. that this looks and feels a bit like a Game Gear, I can see that that would probably appeal to a certain demographic. I must admit, for me, this is not something I probably invest in. Yeah, I mean, I've not actually got a Game Gear. Um, which just Mr. Sega has yeah, I know, I know. It's because they're all like you said. You always need recapping and stuff yeah. like that, you know. And a lot it is difficult to find a foot a, a Game Gear that hasn't been restored or is fully original from you know fully working original from back in the day. So I guess this could be a nice replacement for that, a nice alternative to that. Um, game gears aren't cheap either, you know, in good working order, etc. It is all about the form factor of it. It is all about yeah. the fact that it, it looks like a Game Gear. Um, so I guess it is going to be, you know, heavily targeted towards people who are Game Gear fans or people who, you know, just like to collect all of these, you know, retro handheld consoles. But uh, this article on Retro Dodo does say that there's over a hundred of these now. Yeah, I can believe now, it. Yeah, which I can believe. I think we've talked about every one of them, haven't we? On the yeah, probably at some point. But, you know, if you're all about the Game Gear and the form factor of the Game Gear, then the Zed Pocket Game Bubble is definitely for you. I like the look of it. I'm probably, with you, Dan, probably won't be picking one up because yeah. I need to get a Game Gear, to be perfectly honest. But, yeah, I do like the look of it. I see the appeal as well of, you know, the fact that it can do multiple systems, you know, kind of having yeah. a device that you can put on your bag, put in your bag and take away on trips and stuff like that. Cause, I mean, I've been to events before and you probably have as well, where there's there's always some guy there who will have like, you know, a, a modded handheld and he's got like, mm-hmm. or a homebrew thing, he's got like launchers on there and 1500 games or something that he yeah, can yeah. suddenly play. And I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, I do kind of see the appeal. But yeah, it's like, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm more sit down in front of the TV kind of guy. But um, mm. And really the, the Switch kind of fills my need for, you know, the, these rare occasions when I need a handheld that's going to play some retro games. But I, I do see the appeal for this, you know, and I think if, if you are one of those people who uh, does travel quite a lot and you want your retro games with you, it could be a nice little solution. No word on release date or pricing yet, but I mean, these are generally these kind of things are like, you know, normally under like 150 quid aren't they yeah I mean, not that expensive so yeah. if it's around that mark you know i think it should be a good seller so we'll uh, link that up if you want to see more about that now um i could tell you're very excited to talk about this one as our uh our resident light gun game fan you know you're always uh there in the arcades aren't you in front of uh <laughs> the, the light gun games in, in, in the queue for time crisis i mean again it's not really a, a genre of games i've been massively into i do remember when i was a kid and i got my amiga 500 um going into dixon's with my mum and mm. uh, the guy that sold her the amiga 500 he was he's chatting to me and he's like do you want a light gun for you your amiga and me being a naive, like, 11-year-old, I thought he's going to give me one for free. And he's like, yeah, I've already mum, 50 quid. I'm like, that's never going to happen. So uh, back in the day, I never owned any light guns or anything. But obviously, I know that stuff like the the NES Zapper, 
does have a large community of fans. And uh, this is always quite cool to see games coming out for peripherals back in the day. So this is a new NES game that features Zappa support. Yeah, so this is Super Sunny World, uh, which is a brand new NES game, um, which does feature Zappa support, which, like you say, is really nice to see that it's, you know, supporting the old peripheral as well as, you know, just being an NES game. So that's great. We'd be talking about it anyway if it was just a new NES game, Mm. but it's got light gun support. So when I first opened up this article to give it a read, I thought, you know, it's going to be Duck Hunt. It's going to be, you know, something like Lethal Enforcers for the Mega Drive. You know, it's it's going to be an old school shooter. But funny enough, this is actually a platformer, a Mario-style platformer game. You know, very colourful, you know, very cheerful, kid-friendly Mario style platformer. Um, and it's been made by a guy called Matt Hewson, um, who's actually a homebrew creator. He's made titles from Below, Witch in Wiz, and now currently working on this. Um, unfortunately, no confirmed release date, but he has said he aims for it to be on physical cartridge, you know, when it comes out for people to buy, which is fantastic. And he's recently taken to Twitter to kind of show off some videos and, you know, screenshots of the game. Um, so that's great. But what's really interesting about it is you might be thinking, oh, it's a Mario platformer. How does the zapper work there? Mm. You know, um, does it have in-between levels where there's a first-person shooter bit? Um, no. A second controller port, you can plug a zapper in, and a second player can shoot enemies off the screen for you. Um, so it's a co-op sounds- experience. So it's a co-op right, experience. Right. And that sounds like a really kind of like novel, like, oh, okay. Like, you know, one of you is essentially, you know, think of Mario, the original Mario for the NES but you put your little brother on the zapper and you can shoot the gumbas for you, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my little brother's 38 now. He might be a bit like, hang on, I can put some, a bit more advanced than this. But yeah. <laughs> that would have been cool back in the day. And I think it's, you know, how many games came out on the zapper? I've got a feeling there was like less than 20. Oh, now you're asking. Yeah. This, isn't the, this isn't the end of year quiz, Dan. You're getting me here today. I mean, it's obviously stuff like Duck Hunt and uh, Wild Gunman, I know, came out on there, didn't it? Yeah, um, Hogan's Alley as well. I've got a feeling there was like less than 20 from, you know, watching YouTube videos of that about the Zapper in the past. And uh, I think it is cool when, you know, stuff comes out for peripherals that don't get a lot of love these days. I mean, I can't imagine many games have come out on the uh, for the Sega Menacer yeah. in the last couple of years, but I might be wrong. Um, yeah, I don't think there's many. So yeah, but yeah, I think it's a really interesting idea, and I can't. People might be screaming at me right now, going, "Oh, this game you could do that on," um, but I can't think of any games off the top of my head, any original games where the second player could use, you know, a gun and mm. you know, kind of protect you as you kind of run around. But yeah, really interesting concept. You can also, uh, you know, if you get like a a life, you know, you hit a box and a life comes out. If it's about to go off the edge because you can't quite get to it second player can shoot it and it will make it bounce around on the screen as well so it doesn't drop off the edge and stuff so some really fun ideas in there um but it just seems like such a an obvious thing that i've never seen before yeah um so quite excited to see that and hopefully get a you know physical release like he says and obviously you're gonna need a, a nice crt yes to play this as the zapper doesn't work on modern yeah, yeah. Tellies, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Not a problem for us, obviously. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, very cool. If you want to keep an eye on that little uh, developing project, we'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, uh, you've got a watch on your wrist at the moment. You're much of a watch guy. I think we've talked about this before. You're not really, are you? More more just looking at your phone kind of guy? No, not got a, never had a smart watch. And I literally have one watch, which I wore for my wedding day. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I ever replaced the battery on it when it died a few years ago. But I know you're, you're quite a smart watch guy kind of guy, aren't you? 
I've had an Apple Watch since they came out, you know, um, which really is just a little device that nags me all day long. You haven't stood up for half an hour. It's time you walked around the room. Or, you know, if, uh, if the text message comes through when I'm busy, you know, as well as pinging on my phone, it'll ping on my wrist now as well. So, uh, yeah, a little virtual nagging assistant, really. Uh, but this little device here could maybe be the, uh, the smartwatch that finally convinces you to get one. Because this is uh, obviously like everything we talk about in this podcast. This is a retro watch. I'd lose it. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does, is small. <laughs> it is small. It does look r- wicked. Retro gaming watch uh, created by Jason Rogers. So this actually ended on Kickstarter two days ago, January 23rd, at the point of recording this. And uh, it's been backed by 501 backers and has just come in short of $100,000. Yeah, it's smashed in, it. Yeah, smashed it. $98,000. He only wanted um, 35,000, so yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's yeah. done really well. Absolutely killed it. But yeah, you might be thinking, is this a, you know, like a ti- Tiger watch? You know, one of the old school, you know, little LED watches. But it's not. It's it's a full-on smartwatch that kind of pulls out from the watch strap, doesn't it? Like a like a slot. And I can only describe it as a miniature Game Boy, Game Boy SP, Game Boy Advance SP, you know, the silver flip one. That's what it reminds yeah. me of. And it, yeah. it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you look at it kind of normally, you know, when it's not in the, the gaming mode. And yeah, it looks like any other kind of Android, you know, smartwatch. You've got like a, mm. the watch faces on there as well. And I imagine like your messages and all that can come up too. Um, but the, the thing about it is that you can actually just basically pop the top of the watch off. Mm. And in there, you've got an emulation system that uses FPGA to basically play most eight and 16 bit systems. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is a, a very small device. So if you picture something like an Apple watch, the screen is around the same size. Yeah. But obviously though, I mean, there are, there are probably quite a few games that you can play on here. I mean, like I said, the ones that come to mind instantly, are game boy games, it does have controls on there, <laughs> like a little D pad. I imagine you're probably going to have quite dainty fingers to yeah. play a game on this though. Yeah, I've got fat fingers, and in in, in the trailer, he is playing A Link to the Past, Shinobi, Outrun, Um, so, you know, a lot of 16-bit titles, Final Fight on there as well, Mortal Kombat 2, uh, Turrican. Um, A lot of these games take a lot of uh, dexterity (laughs) and uh, precise uh, input (laughs) for uh, some difficult games there. But I love the novelty of it, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I can just imagine if I was, you know, because you see a lot of like different smartwatches and stuff now, but if someone, you're like a, a gaming expert and someone decides, I've seen my watch and they'll pop it off and suddenly it's like a mini Game Boy. You'd be like, yeah. wow, that, that is, it's a novelty in itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I do love is the pictures of the prototypes and stuff on the Kickstarter are yeah. showing off. It is literally the same size as a smartwatch, yeah. you know, pretty much the same depth as well as same screen size and everything on there. So it's not like a huge chunky you know like oh i've got a you know big old matchbox or you know kind of cigarette pack size on my wrist or anything like that it is small little dainty you know smartwatch. uh obviously it will run doom as well yeah there's an <laughs> which, image of that of course everything yeah. runs doom <laughs> uh, which i do love yeah i mean it it does look cool it was a hundred i think it was 139 dollars to just you know back it and just get the watch um yeah so, cheaper than an apple watch yeah a lot cheaper than an apple watch uh, and considering, I guess, this also falls into what we were just talking about there with the game bubble. Uh, it kind of falls into that genre of all these little retro devices as well. But in terms of 
price comparison to them around the same price once again yeah. as well as being a smartwatch which is pretty cool and one thing i like about it as well is he's really gone into detail about how important having good emulation on this is because i mean like you know we said yeah. it's a bit of a novelty I don't know if I played all that much, but actually he's saying here that, you know, it's really gone into depth about, obviously it's got that beautiful screen on there, yeah. custom high resolution display, but he said there's an FPGA on there as well to basically create custom video game hardware on the fly. So it's not just like, a, you know, the emulation's an afterthought. I mean, there's some pretty decent specs in here. It's got an ARM Cortex M33 running up to 160 megahertz, two low power cores for Bluetooth and sensors. Um, you've got eight megabytes of external RAM on there as well. It's got a dedicated low-power 2D graphics processor, and then the FPGA is there too. You know, you can turn that on if there's more demanding games. Mm -hmm. So basically saying it can handle pretty much, you know, most 8 and 16-bit games, DOS-era stuff. It says it's even got more horsepower than the N64 oh, wow. games as well. So he has some problems that N64 games will run smoothly on here. That is one thing he says, just 8 and 16-bit games, but... You know, maybe some of them would run quite nicely on here if you've ever wanted to play, you know, N64 games on your wrist. I think, again, this is, you know, it's a certain type of gamer. We did talk before about how, you know, you might want to have one of the retro emulation systems in your bag when you travel. But if you really can't be away from your video games and you need them on your body 24 hours a day, then this could be a good solution. So. <laughs> Sat on the plane and you just go, yeah. oh. Just yeah. go, just play on my watch. <laughs> That's just, I'd, it'd be too much of a distraction for me. I think yeah. of like, you know, I look at my Apple watch now and it, like I said, you know, I got all these bloody texts and alerts and messages come through. If I looked at it now, I thought I'd have a quick blast of doom now for, like, that'd be my day gone. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I don't think I get anything done, but um, I do think it's very cool. And something quite unique as well. So that has just ended on Kickstarter. If you did back it, I'm sure you're excited about receiving it. No word on um, if there's going to be any available for, you know, anyone that didn't back it, but um, we'll link that up if you want to keep an eye on that. Hopefully there will be some uh, additional stock if you like the look of it. Now, just one more thing to talk about before we hop into this week's special guest. And this is something I must admit that I am rather hyped for because um, not long to go now. I think it's March 20th, so less than two months to go until the original Alone in the Dark reboot lands. Yeah, so uh, this is getting remade by THQ Nordics. Alone in the Dark reboot. Yeah, March 20th, 2024. Looking forward to this. We did cover it when it was announced early yeah. last year. It's going to be coming out on PS5, Xbox Series X and S, uh, and obviously Windows you know, uh, as well, PC. Well, I, know, I know you're like a, a Resident Evil fan. You know, you, you love your horror games. Have you played much Alone in the Dark before? Um, I've played the original a little bit. Um, and then I've played, oh man, what's it called? The remake that they did on PS1. Uh, New Nightmare, I think it was called. New Nightmare, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that one was really Resident Evil, and it's funny because obviously, Alone in the Dark actually inspired Resident Evil. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of uh, inspiration and you know, uh, game ideas taken from the original Alone in the Dark. For Alone in the Dark to then have to copy Resident Evil, something kind of bittersweet in that. And then obviously there was the 360 remake as well, um, which was wasn't very good um, i was gonna say i never played that one but i did see some quite scathing reviews of that one so i, I said that one out. finished it i actually played it the whole way through um because of i was about 18 19 at the time and it was like a five pound xbox 360 games so i was like yeah i'll grab that and i played through it and yeah i remember it being glitchy as hell and i think that was the last time we saw alone in the dark until now uh so 32 years later we are going to get another remake but i am excited for this very similar to the Resident Evil remake games that we've been seeing over the last five years. But the reason we are talking about it, it's made its way <laughs> into the news, is uh, fantastically, 
uh, you can get the original Alone in the Dark skins for this game, which I think look absolutely fantastic, you know, kind of like in the in-game engine, you know, while the clips are playing and while you're running around, you know, shooting all kind of grisly monsters. Uh, I don't know the names of the characters in the original Alone in the Darks, but, you know, I know exactly what they look like. And I think, you know, they're quite iconic looks, <laughs> you know, very, very polygon, polygonal, triangular looks. And I just think it looks fantastic in this very beautifully looking modern game. Yeah, the characters were, uh, it's Edward and Emily, I believe the names are, okay. Edward and Emily, yeah. in the game. And uh, I mean, yeah, the original came out in 1992. Yeah. And, you know, then I had, I think I saw my Amiga 500 Plus then, which... Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of, I mean, I'd only had it about a year, which is weird because when you're a kid, like a year feels a hell of a long time. Yeah. Doesn't it? Whereas now, I mean, you know, we talk about stuff on this podcast that happened like <laughs> a decade ago and it feels like yesterday. Like, really? Yeah. It's been that long? <laughs> um, but I, I do remember seeing it on Bad Influence on TV mm. and when they previewed that game. I've got a feeling it was around the Halloween episode as well. So around that time of year, like, you know, October, November. Um, and obviously, to, to me, that was kind of one of the, you know the first time I'd seen like a, a 3D survival horror game. You know, it was definitely, if not the first one, one of the earliest ones. And having those really unique looking 3D polygon graphics, just like nothing I'd seen before. And I still remember vividly seeing that scene on TV right at the start where, you know, you're the character, you know, Edward or Emily, and you're in that room and then the little monster jumps through the window. Yeah. Yeah, and that yeah. was just like, that's seared into my mind. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when I play Alone in the Dark now, the controls are quite janky. Yeah. When you play that original version, the combat system in it is very difficult to get to grips with. Once you've mastered it, the game's actually quite easy. But it's yeah, um, yeah it, it is that kind of initial fight. I think that most people kind of give up on it these days, just because you got those tank controls and you know. But I think the fact that because those graphics are so iconic, the mm-hmm. fact that you can now play this modern twenty twenty four update, and hilariously, I mean, from the screenshots I've seen here on Twitter, you actually can turn Edward or Emily into their nineteen ninety two style graphics, but the rest of the game appears to be the modern look. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it looks. I mean. They did it with Resident Evil 2 as well. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I love it. Like, you know, there's little, well, I say little nods, those massive nods back to the originals. You, you know, it's just the novelty of it. it. Unfortunately, it's only in the digital deluxe version. Right. Uh, which is usually, you know, like £5 extra. And it gives you a load of filters for the game as well. You know, like black and white filter or there's like a pixelated filter as well which just makes the game look like mush to me from the trailer but yeah i love it you know i think uh for me um i will probably pick this up because i'm a big survival horror guy yeah and i probably will just pick the digital deluxe version up now they've sold it to me uh probably play through the game as intended first time around and then when i do a second time around to kind of pick up some trophies and achievements i'll probably stick the original 92 graphic skins (laughs) for my characters yeah, isn't it funny that we're all laughing at that now? I remember when those graphics were cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like yeah, saying exactly. that to me, like, wow, that looks, they, they look so realistic. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> How far we've come, eh? Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, again, this is going to be one that I pick up as well, because generally when I play the original Alone in the Dark, I like to do it, you know, actually on my 486 PC, mm. kind of, you know, load the game up from DOS. And obviously, uh, you know, I talk about it quite a lot when we get to Halloween. I play Jack in the Dark, that's kind of my... Yeah. Halloween game that I play most years, but I do like to play it on original hardware. But I think having, you know, an updated version of it, and I imagine they've probably done stuff like improve the control mechanism, you know, which they generally always give yeah, you. Yeah. If they always give you an option normally, don't they, if you want to use the original tank controls or 
something a bit more modern. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, this is going to be one that I pick up as well. And apparently there's going to be stuff like um, director's commentary as well. It kind of gives you an insight into the, the game's development stuff on that digital deluxe version. So cool. I think for fans of the game, it's yeah. going to be uh, something definitely worth picking up. So not long to wait now. Uh, coming out end of March, so uh, I'll link that up. And, of course, the rest of the stories we talk about, you don't have to Google around. I save you the job every week. Just check the show notes or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Now, this week's special guest, Andy Crawshaw of Tempest Software, talking about classics like Excalibur, 2555 AD, uh, Alien Hominid as well. Everyone's gone to the rapture. Lots more of that coming up. Ravi's going to be here in the second half of the podcast chatting with Andy. But before we do that, let's just take a quick second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor. And it is a regular sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, our wonderful friends at Shopify. Now, uh, this is a sound that if you use Shopify, oh, you'll love hearing. You know what that sound means, Joe? It means you've made a sale. That is it. Ka-ching. You've made another sale with Shopify. Now, if you haven't used Shopify before, um, this is why you might want to, because it does feel like now, you know, in 2024, everyone has kind of got a side hustle going on or becoming their own boss, you know, trying to earn a few extra quid. So um, Shopify is really the platform that takes all the hassle out of doing that. It is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. And it is a platform that is revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. Now, you were talking before, I mean, before recorded, I said, have you actually used Shopify before? And you were like, I've seen people using these at retro gaming events. Yeah, the little uh, Shopify tap and ship card readers. Yeah. Um, I think that's really kind of changed the stratosphere of, you know, for me, obviously it's retro game markets, but I imagine they get used at so many other markets, you know, Christmas markets, craft markets. Yeah wedding fairs, etc. Ten years ago, five years ago, these were all, you know, cash businesses. You'd have to take God. cash to these things. I remember it's got the play expert and having yeah. to stop at a garage and get like yeah. 200 quid out of a cash point or something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, these little, you know, chip and pin readers that they do are absolutely fantastic and they look so easy. And they're not, you know, the big, massive, chunky Verifone ones no. that you've got to stick your card in. They're like a little slick, black, kind of like glass looking you know, sm- as small as a as a as a credit card, as a debit card uh, device that you know you just hook up to your smartphone, um, and then obviously it's just contactless and it just looks seamless and they just make it so much easier. Yeah, so I mean, you can you know if you sell in person, that's a really good solution. But also they do online as well. Yeah, yeah. It really covers all of your sales channels. So you get a, a shopfront ready point of sale system, the all in one e commerce platform online as well. It even helps you sell across social media marketplaces, stuff like Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, full of industry-leading tools to ignite your growth and give you complete control over your business. The best thing is, for guys like us, Joe, you don't need to learn new skills. No web design, no coding, none of that. You know, you take care of your business, they take care of all the stuff that, you know, you need to make money, really. So they've actually got award-winning help too. So if you do get stuck at any point of the way, they've also got an extensive business course library available 24 hours a day. So they're ready to support your business success every step of the way. So however big you want to grow in 2024, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence you need to take your business to the next level today. So why don't you sign the product now and try it out for yourself? And of course, we've got you an incredible offer, like we always do. You can try Shopify out for just £1 a month a £1 a month trial period, head to this link right now, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour, or lowercase, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. I'll put that in the show notes as well, and get ready to take your business to the next level today and hear a lot more of this. And we thank Shopify for their support of the show. 
Right then, well, Ravi will be back for next week's podcast for the news and, of course, uh, hopefully joining us on Sunday as well for the patrons' hangout. Um, if you are a patron or uh, if you sign up beforehand, we'd love to see you there. All the details to sign up to our patron are on the website at theretrohour.com and hopefully we'll see you there for the first hangout. Just completely geeking out about all things retro uh, coming up this Sunday evening from 8pm UK time. Right there, next, we're going to be getting the inside story on classics like Excalibur, 2555 AD, uh, which was Tomb Raider influence, a bit of a hidden gem, Alien Hominid, that started life as a flash game back in the day, and lots more as well with our special guest artist Andy Crawshaw is coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with Andy Crawshaw. And, you know, He's done some amazing games. He's done some art in video games as well. Uh, one I particularly love was Alien Hominid as well. And uh, later on, going into titles like Everyone's Gone to the Rapture, but also Dear Esther. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, we always start the podcast with one question, and that was uh, uh, what was your first video game experience that really stood out to you or, or that you remember? Okay, so I'm... I'm an oldest chap, um, and my brother's four years old for me. So we were we were sort of playing games around. We had a ZX eighty one. We had an original Atari VCS. These sort of TV sports games like Pong and things that you could get. So I I did start like back in the day. I think the first one that kind of um, really stuck in my memory was uh, Horace Goes Skiing. Nice. Um, yes. Probably not that great if you looked at it now, but um, yeah, we, it was just this incredible time where TV before then had been a place where things were broadcast to you, and it just felt like magic that you could play things on your TV. So yeah, I, I started off fairly old school. Did you have any um, experience in like computer-based art or, or playing around with any art packages? Um, before I got into so not really. I went to university and did fine art. I wanted to be a painter and be like air quotes, a proper artist. And like I said, i have been playing games with my brother um, for years. And then around the age of sort of 14, 15, you know, other things become a little bit more interesting. Went away to university and I won a mega drive at the end of my first year. And that, that kind of killed off my, my art career, I guess. I spent a lot of time playing games when maybe I should have been painting and things. And towards the end of the, my course, I was asking my tutors if there was any way that I could do any digital art. And those co- courses just weren't there at the time. So it took another year after I left uni before I um, I managed to get into a games company. And I took a little bit of a weird detour. I spent a year in civil service doing, of all things, giving out money from the European Union to various schemes around Yorkshire. And one of them, there were two that sort of caught my eye. One of them was um, they'd given what was Gremlin graphics back then uh, some money to do their um, motion capture. And I sort of wangled it so I could have a site visit and go and visit those guys. And then there was another course at Bradford University that was getting European funding. And it's for people that were unemployed to learn um, digital skills. They didn't describe it very well, but they said they had a 3D component to that. So I left my job at the civil service so I could be unemployed, so I could um, go on this course. And that's how I learned 3D software, 
And from there, I managed to get a job, a local company called uh, Tempest Software in Horsforth in Leeds. And that's how it all started, I guess. What else were they working on at the time then? Anything else we might know them from? So the people that work there have sort of come off the back of um, things like Mega Drive games and uh, SNES games. And Tempest itself, its first title was a game called Lone Soldier, which was a launch title for uh, PlayStation 1, or maybe just after launch. I didn't work on that, but I came on board for their second game, which was a game called uh, Excalibur 2555, which was a, a kind of RPG, a light RPG game, 3D exploration. Our big thing was that we had um, a female lead character, but just uh, a few months before we launched, uh, Tomb Raider got announced and that kind of stole all our thunder. So, yeah, just one of those things. What was it kind of like in those early days then of 3D development on the PlayStation? Because you look at a few titles that came a lot later on and they look, uh, you know, completely different. Um, yeah, I, I guess people were still figuring out what they could do. I think it's fair to say that PlayStation being a massive success, maybe more than people realised it would be. A lot of the people that were making games to come from a 2D background, you found a lot of people left the industry then. I say a lot of people, the industry was a lot smaller, but you would get some people that couldn't transfer their skills. I think I was lucky in that I would never have been a great 2D artist. So going straight in at 3D, um, it was fun. And there were lots of technical aspects to it as well, which... I really enjoy it. I like problem solving. So I managed to sort of wear many hats. And uh, yeah, it, it was fun. Yeah, I, I also heard that there was no kind of designer of the game. Um, like everybody just got involved from the art department and stuff. What was it like working kind of collaboratively like that? Looking back, it's like, oh my God, did we really do that? But yeah, everyone kind of, everyone got involved in design. And it, and it was kind of confusing because for the longest time, I didn't realise that in my heart, I was a, a designer. Even though I, I carried on my career as an artist and went on to be a lead artist um, in control of the team, uh, when really my thing was design. And I always managed to keep my a hand into that aspect of things. So I, there was never anywhere that I worked where I wasn't doing a bit of design as well. So yeah, it, it was kind of a weird time where people would just we were just making it up as we went along, basically. And how how did you kind of see, like, PlayStation 1 technology change over that time period, like, you know, loading times and uh, save points and stuff like that? I think over the years, the thing that, um, the thing that kind of changed gameplay quite a lot was uh, save games and the speed of those and size of those. To the point now where you, you just don't even think about it, but you've got to remember that when we sort of moved on to PlayStation, it was almost the first game, but uh, almost the first console to sort of really embrace saves. You kind of had them on PC, I guess, less so on consoles before that. So that was a real uh, game changer, I guess. Yeah, some of the some of the consoles had level codes and uh, stuff yeah. like that still. Yeah, yeah. Well, how did you get involved with Tuna, and what other development houses were you working with around that time? So Tempest reached um, a kind of, we went bust basically. And I had a short stint at a local company in Leeds called The Code Monkeys, which is one of those companies that 
nearly everyone of a certain age passed through at some time or another. I was just there for, I think, three months working on a Simpsons skateboarding game, which could have been a lot of fun. It, I mean, it was a lot of fun. I didn't hang around there for very long. Then I moved over to a company called Rage. Um, they were a publisher, stroke developer, and they had an office in Leeds. And we never quite made, uh, we never quite got up and running there. We were around for about 18 months and then they closed us down. And we got absorbed by Rage Sheffield. And it was one of those cycles in the industry where places were being closed down and, and things like that. So um, I think we maybe survived as part of Rage Sheffield for another year and then that vanished. Then that was followed by a very short stint at uh, Revolution, working on uh, Broken Sword, uh, again, for about three months. And when I'd been looking for that job, uh, Tuna was one of the companies that I also approached around that time. And they got back to me and asked if I wanted to come on board as a creative director, which is like my dream job, that mixture of art and design. So I just jumped at the chance and, um, yeah, joined them for about five years, I think. Well, you know, if you're thinking about that time in the industry when you get into the 2000s as well, I mean, obviously, I know you're working on uh, artwork for the PlayStation 2. And what were kind of the differences in approach needed when developing artwork for the, the PS2 versus, uh, you know, a, a less advanced system like the PS1? How did you notice that difference? So um, there's a couple of things going on. The software is changing at the same time. So working on Excalibur on PlayStation 1, we were using 3D Studio and when you were applying materials for example you couldn't see them on your model you had to stop what you were doing render it off and then if you misaligned something you'd have to adjust it and by the time we're onto playstation 2 maybe a little bit before that 3d studio becomes 3ds max and you can you've got that kind of real-time feedback where you can see what your materials are doing and that made such a massive difference you could um you could save so much time and of course the Polygon counts were going up. I can't remember sort of roughly how much more we had to play with. Probably four or five times it felt like. So yeah, we, we were getting we were getting that chance to build more elaborate things, put more things on screen. I mean, I I said I was a problem solver, and I kind of liked the restrictions of PlayStation One, where you were literally counting every single triangle you were using and trying to be super efficient with everything. Yeah. Um, I thought Obliterate was an interesting title. Um, how much of an influence was kind of like Point Blank and these uh these like mini mini shooting games? You spotted that then. Um, it was a huge influence. We had a, a light gun setup. Uh, in fact, I'm getting a little bit confused now because we had we used to play a lot of light gun games at Tempest. We had it set up in the office and we play uh, Point Blank and things like that. We did a similar thing at, at Tuna, but yeah, I. I I was kind of a driving force behind Obliterate just because I wanted to make a light gun game. But because of the budgets we were on and the publishers we were on, it was more of a, um, you still had to play it on your controller, which was a little bit disappointing, but it was still, um, it was still fun. And it's one of those games where I loved making it as well. And I guess you were in that period as well, just before HDMI as well, where, um, light guns would kind of not be supported in the future. Um, do you kind of miss that period of gaming? Yeah, I do. It looks like with things like VR, we're going to get another another generation of light gun style games. 
But yeah, I, I really liked that kind of physicality of it. And it, yeah, I, I think there's a natural progression from that's things like Guitar Hero and yeah, those there was like a golden age of peripherals that came around with PlayStation 2 and I think died out over PlayStation 3. Yeah, they've kind of come back to it now. There's one called the Cinder Light Gun, um, which you can use on modern, uh, you know, modern displays and stuff. So that's pretty cool that they've, they've, oh, keep an they've eye come around that. to that. Yeah, <laughs> keep an eye out. And he also moved into um, handheld console development as well. What was that like? And I imagine you have to kind of put your head in a different space when you're developing for a handheld system versus, you know, a television console. Yeah. So despite what I said earlier on um, about being terrible at 2D art, we went back to um, handheld games while I was at Tuna. So out of necessity, we went back to some of those um, styles of games. So before I joined Tuna, their bread and butter was Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games. And one of the things they wanted to do when I joined them was start to move on to console. Again, we were doing mobile shortly after that as well. So we were doing a lot of different things and we were a teeny tiny team. We, we were like, we got up to about eight people at the core of a studio and then lots of freelancers and things like that. So it, it was kind of chaotic from a development point of view. There were times when I were working on maybe four or five games at once. I was wondering, were you much of a fan of uh, the Newground site and, um, you know, those kind of flash titles which were which were massively popular at the time? Yes. Yeah, so I sort of stumbled ac- across uh, Newgrounds, had a big uh, period of playing a lot of flash games. It was kind of interesting because we'd seen this game, Alien Hominid, and we saw what the guys um, at Behemoth were trying to do and they were they just announced that they'd got a deal to bring it onto console, which was it was kind of a template for what we wanted to do, where they were making that step up and getting big deals and things like that. And it was kind of a stroke of fortune. A publisher in um, Sheffield, which is where Tune was based, it's called Zoo, and they got the license for Alien Hominid in Europe. And we originally we were just going to help with the ports, and then we we kind of sold them on this idea of trying to get it onto Game Boy as well. And uh, yeah, that that turned into quite an adventure. Yeah, it's quite an interesting um, path going from a, a flash game to a you know console title, and then going onto the Game Boy Advance. Um, do you think there was a bit of kind of people turning their nose up to these flash titles until Alien Hominid came around? I think there was a touch of that. I mean, I I think it possibly people felt a little bit like Flash was Wild West and consoles where you just go out and you buy a disc and you stick it in your machine. It was a safer environment. I'm not sure, to be honest, because me and the people I know were all just kind of playing games wherever they were. But maybe yeah, that was the, the sort of market. Um, and I think like, you know, the uh, the Behemoth as well, doing stuff like uh, Castle Crashes as well later on and stuff really kind of solidified that whole um, that whole kind of flash to, to, to console. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm sure they're glad they uh, they made that move now. But um it was I think it's been long enough to say this now, but we were very close to doing a Nintendo DS companion game for Castle Crashers. Oh cool. Yeah, it, it we had chats and we met up at various um games conferences, but it just never quite happened. Well, one thing about that game, I mean, you know, Alien Hominid, that the sprite animation was lovely in that game and there was so much going on 
at the same time. I mean, what were the considerations needed when you're developing, you know, such a a manic title, I guess you'd call it? I mean, we had um, lead programmer Mark Fit was really good at squeezing out everything you could on, on Game Boy. We were slightly helped that the, because of the way the palettes were, um, we didn't have, you know, the, the relative file sizes could be kept as small as possible. Um, but we just kind of kept on adding things and, and seeing where it, it kind of led and how much stuff we could get in there. And we had brilliant source material. We had access to the original Flash files and they were, you know, as, as someone who loves game art, that was like a treasure trove. You just look, looking for all these files that um, Dan Paladin had, had drawn and these beautiful, amazing graphics. And, you know, my job on that game mostly was um, just kind of making the work in the right formats for, for Game Boy. Uh, I think I managed to draw my own a handful of things in there of my own. Hopefully no one noticed them because uh, I take from, for them to detract from this amazing artwork. Uh, people thought it was a, a really good port. Uh, were you pleased with how it went down? Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of my... Um, I, I say this quite without um, without wanting to sound too flippant. I've made a lot of bad... I've made some great games. I've made some terrible games. And Alien Hominid, Hominid is definitely in the top half. Um, even though it was a port, it's something that I'm, I'm really proud of being involved with. I think we made that transition to GBA. I think we did a really good job of that. The Sky's the Limit sounds like a really interesting project as well, kind of mixing that uh, physical uh, and, uh, you know, virtual. Um, how did you get involved with that and how did it kind of work? So at, at Tuna, I was given um, Alex Ansel, the MD. He gave me a lot of freedom to just kind of try different things. You know, I, I, was, I think I was aware of it at the time, but in retrospect, I was really spoiled with the amount of um, leeway I had. And I just said, I fancy making a, like a, a real world game. And, um, it's as far as I'm aware, it's only ever been played twice. Um, one time I couldn't attend cause I had swine flu and I can't remember the other, but I've never seen it played live, but basically it was a game with helium filled balloons with lights in them and, um, with string attached to them and you had to complete tasks and puzzles around the area that the game was being played to get a little bit more length of string and whoever's bloom went up highest uh, at the end of the game was the winner. I mean, I, I heard it went down well, but like I say, I've never actually seen it being played, which is a strange thing for a game design. You just literally do it all on paper and maybe try one or two of the little physical things out in prototype. Mm. And then it just, it's a live game. It happens once, twice in this case, and you just, whatever happens, happens. Do you think, you know, those those kind of early location-based games help to create a path for games like, you know, Pokemon Go in more recent years? I, I think the way games evolve, I think Pokemon Go would have probably happened anyway, but I'll take as much credit as you want to give me for that. <laughs> Shame you can't give me the royalties, but... Yeah. <laughs> um, and how did you get involved with uh, Chinese Room Limited then? So I decided to leave Tuna. Um, again, we were going through one of these cycles in the industry. It was clear that things were getting kind of tough. Um, money was getting tight and I decided to go freelance. And I did that for about a year. 
didn't do a whole lot. I made a game called Lapuranus, which we might come back to later. But um, I was reaching a point where money was getting really tight. My freelance aspirations hadn't really worked out. And Alex that I used to work with at Tuna, he just dropped me a line and he said, have you seen that this company are hiring? And um, yeah, I, I just dropped them a line and it, thank God it worked out. But um, for that particular job, originally... So um, Dearester was a research project that came out of uh, Portsmouth University. So when I, air quote, joined the Chinese room, I was actually joining uh, University of, of Portsmouth as a in-house game designer, which is a, a very weird job to have at university. So um, stuff like everybody's gone to the Rapture and Dearester, how long were their developments? Because I know you're working on the kind of prototype version when you went on to amnesia as well yeah so um the timeline the timelines for those things kind of overlap so dear rest was more or less they were just kind of reaching the last month or two with the project where i joined so i didn't have a lot of involvement on that apart from sort of play testing and feeding back and um and giving them um notes and stuff but it was pretty much what you see now my they brought me on board to prototype everybody's gone to rapture so dan and the team there were tied up on finishing dear Esther, and then they were going straight on to amnesia a machine for pigs and we had a crossover period of about eight months i'd guess um where i was working on uh prototypes for rapture the rest of the team were working on amnesia a machine for pigs and then we got a a green light from Sony, but we knew that those um, negotiations were going to take a few months. So that worked out kind of nicely because it means I could move on to the machine for pigs for like the last third or so of that game. And then by the time we finished that, Rapture was ready to go. But from the moment I joined to the moment Rapture came out, I think it was about three years, which is maybe a little bit longer than, than I'd like to welcome a game, but given... Mm. Given the kind of feedback and, I guess, notoriety of the game, I'm, I feel blessed that I was able to work on it. Well, Amnesia Machine for Pigs, that's a crazy title. <laughs> what did you think of the idea when you first heard about it? And were you aware of the series before? I had some idea of Amnesia. And obviously, once I got involved in Chinese reading, like, I played Dark Descent and um, some of the other Amnesia projects that were around. I guess... It gave me a real insight into what I could expect from working with Dan and Jess, Chinese room, in that they they're quite happy to sort of forge their own path. So, uh, a machine for bigs got a lot of um, it, it was a bit of a marmite game, I guess, for people because a lot of people like their horror delivered in a, a certain way, and we'd taken it a slightly different way. But that's what I I really loved about Chinese room that we would just do things even if it wasn't what the market was expecting. Well, well what was the design approach to a, a horror title compared to uh, uh, ones that you've worked on before as well? Um, you know what, because because I, I've done all different kinds of games, I think it just comes, it always boils down to that relationship that you've got with a player and, and the way that you interact with them, what you allow them to do, what you sort of tease them into doing. So yeah, for for me, it didn't feel. I mean, obviously, you've got to put your head in a slightly different place, but it it seemed to be 
from a design point of view, it felt like I was flexing all the same muscles, just in a slightly different way. And um, it, w- it was using the HP Lovecraft engine as well, but it was kind of like heavily modified. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, that was a, a real shocker. Um, I'd gone there and I'd started working in CryEngine, learning CryEngine for, a, that's what we built everybody's guns for rapturing. And then when I jumped back onto Amnesia, they have their own thing going on, um, which, you know, it can clearly do a lot of things, but I just, uh, when you've got an internal engine, there's, it's quite often that you don't get all the docu- documentation you want or support you want. So yeah, that that was, I can remember a few frustrating weeks where I just literally couldn't figure anything out. And um, everybody's super busy at this point and I'm sort of trying everything and just figuring out what does what in the engine and finally getting things to do what they should. So yeah, it, it was um, it was a, an interesting phase to go through. Uh, I'm still not entirely sure how I managed to do what I did, but um, yeah, it was a lot of taking apart examples that were already working and then reconfiguring them. And yeah, I um, you'll probably give me nightmares now that you've um, brought that <laughs> brought up all that back. Yeah, yeah. yes. Well, the Magnificent Truffle Pigs is a really interesting title. How did you get involved in this then? And what was kind of the background there on, on that project? So um, after the, the Chinese room, I decided I want to go, wanted to go back and do my own thing again. Um, this time around, I actually had a bit of money in the bank, so I had a bit of a runway to go and do my own thing. Managed to pick up some funding from UK Games Fund. Um, and I just, I started making a different game spent almost a year doing it and then just realized that it wasn't quite getting there and i canned it and kind of built the prototype for what would become truffle pigs i think it was maybe about a week um if you played it there's not a whole lot going on there in terms of gameplay so it it wasn't like a a, a huge turnaround to get all of those things done it was a lot of stripping away things that i put in the previous prototype and just making them fit for purpose. I was really lucky that I got signed really early on this. I had a working prototype, but the publisher didn't um, didn't look at it. Uh, they just did uh, signed it off a pitch deck. It was one of those games. I wanted to do something that was just really about me and what I wanted to do, uh, especially because I I sort of saved all this money up, waited a few years for the right time, and. I wanted to go away and make something. So but well, Truffle Peaks ended up being a little bit of a, a sort of kitchen sink game in terms of story. And I, I put a lot of things in there that had been floating around for a while. So it was a little bit self-indulgent, but I felt like I'd earned right, the right to do that. Well, I also think like all the, the small details in the game, such as like the uh, the lighting and, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of little movement of things that, really help push the the game into the new level. Do you think that kind of helped with development of future titles that you did as well? Um, so the, in terms of future titles, there's um, a couple of things. I'm having that tricky second game period where I keep on building prototypes and changing the direction I want to move in things. But in terms of what we did in Truffle Bigs with the art, I had an amazing artist called uh, Laura Dawes who she just... So so the game is loosely based around the Yorkshire countryside. I live in a sort of 
suburb of Leeds. It's a little bit leafy in places, you could say. And then Laura lives uh, further out towards the countryside. So it, this is kind of what's on her doorstep. And I think she captured it so well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that kind of countryside feel as well, um, uh, did did that help towards, you know, everybody's gone to the rapture? Um, so I had a, a real, um, there were moments when I didn't want to make truffle pigs because I didn't want to have too many sort of overlaps between rapture. And I think a lot of people could look at them and go, yeah, it's out in the countryside. It's, for want of a better word, a bit walking semi. Um, so I, I was pushing against that for so long and then I, I just thought, that, well, this is where I want to go. I'm just going to go with it. And um, I, I mean, I, I think there's enough of me in Rapture that I don't feel bad about doing another outdoorsy game because yeah, that it's what I've been doing for for a few years now. So, but then for a long time there was that conflict about should I do something that might seem very similar to some people. I mean, personally, I think it's a very different game, both in tone and in what you actually do in there. Yeah. But yeah, from initial glance, people can see all the trees and go, oh, it's uh, another outdoor walking sim game. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, everyone's gone to the Rapture isn't like retro, but it's 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 got this kind of music-driven um, uh, feel that, you know, games like Loom previously had, but also you were getting incidental music put into games like Max Payne and, you know, it, it, it was a total different um, kind of approach to a game. But also the the graphics were really important because you didn't have a, a HUD or an inventory. Um, uh, you know, how was that kind of focus put on graphics and having stuff like areas highlighting and being able to drive the gameplay? Yeah, it's something that we, um, because we had this kind of long gestation period where we were playing around with things, I think we knew from the start we didn't want any kind of hood in there. And the gameplay, so something that we did really well at Chinese Room because we had Jess Curry on board. We, we had, um, so a lot of games will have concept art at the start that will drive the sort of style and people hook onto that, developers hook onto that and, it, you know, it, it kind of grounds project. But we had concept music. So, Jess would write small pieces and little music, um, little vignettes of music. And so from the start, there was music in the world almost as soon as we had any kind of visuals in there. And that really drove how we made things. And something that it it sort of specifically did um, for me as a designer was this idea of building in, I think we call them contemplation zones. So you've got areas in the game where there there are things going on and things to explore, but we explicitly wanted places where we'd travel from one area to another, and we would draw everything back so that you would you'd kind of have time to um, contemplate what's just gone on. And these were usually after a sort of fairly major story beat. So yeah, the, all those things kind of combined together to sort of shape the world and the size of it and the density of things going on in there. I guess it's um, relying on the gamer's kind of perception as well and, um, uh, you know, that their idea of imagination and exploration. Yeah. Um, I remember streaming wasn't 
as huge as it is now, it was just kind of taking off. And when we launched, I went to watch people playing it online and it, it was kind of terrifying. I think at the time, a lot of people were looking at walking sims and thinking it, it was kind of a, a sort of lazy design job. But when you've got an open world where people can pretty much go anywhere, but you've got to be really careful in the way that you breadcrumb them so that they they kind of follow the golden path that you want them to, even though they can veer off here, there and everywhere. So yeah, it was terrifying watching people and just kind of really hoping that they go a certain way and not get lost and, you know, hidden in, uh, getting lost in trees and things like that. So it, it was, um, yeah, it, it, it was kind of terrifying as um, a terrifying design task trying to make people sort of adhere to the places you wanted them to go but I think we pretty much cracked it um, Dear Esther um, you worked on Landmark Edition as well and how much did you enjoy working on that title I, I saw it live and it was uh, you know with a with an orchestra and uh, absolutely amazing to kind of see it in that way so f- full disclosure, um, the Landmark Edition, it, it was primarily a technical job, just porting the game. Um, it was originally done in Source Engine for, you know, Valve Source Engine, and we moved it across to Unity so that we it would be a little bit easier to update it and put it onto different consoles and stuff. So, uh, yeah, for, for me, that was primarily a, a technical task. And um, as a designer... You know, a lot of that stuff was handled by by our lead programmers. So it, it, it was great to sort of get a further look behind the scenes and see all the stuff in there. Uh, but it was a very light touch game for me was that, it, from a development point of view. So do you think having the university involved helped you kind of increase the art in the game, but also add more acceptance to a, a game that's uh, driven by art? I, I think that was possibly the case for Dear Esther. I mean, the mechanics of all of that happened before I, I joined Chinese Room. I, I know from talking to Dan that it started off as a research project and that meant the there were commercial um, requirements put on it. But then, ironically, it goes on to be a huge success and pretty much funds the company and um, helps things to sort of develop in in terms of well we've we've done this thing that people said audiences wouldn't be interested in and they're really interested in it so why don't we double down on that and do something that is you know all about atmosphere and feeling and um looks amazing and sounds amazing so from that extent i guess we do have the university to thank that that original gem was started it's such a different uh, route to, um, you know, uh, uh, video game success from uh, uh, a lot of the traditional routes and companies. Yeah, I, so something something I often see is the people that chase money in games, you know, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. And I, I genuinely think that people that just follow the games that they want to make rather than think too heavily about the commercial side of things, I don't think they fare any worse. I mean, obviously, there are edge cases where people just like lose a bunch of money and uh, <laughs> and go bankrupt and things. But I, I think, um, I think more people should make games that they 
they're really passionate about making rather than games that they're making because they're passionate about making money. And I think those two things, they're on scale. And, you know, I don't think it's an either or thing. I don't think you need to be artistically driven or commercially driven. I think there's a lot of space in the middle of those two things. But I, I definitely think more people should, you know, just follow their hearts and make whatever they will make. Well, Andy, it's been incredible to hear some of the uh, the background on, you know, genre-defining games that you've worked on. Anything kind of in the pipeline that you're working on these days? Anything else coming up from you? So, like I, I said, I'm I'm on that kind of difficult second game where I'm bouncing ideas around. Um, mm. I just had a mini career break where I, I've gone off and done some VR projects for um, a client uh, that I can't really talk about. But now I, I'm just sort of going back through some of the prototypes that I've been building and seeing what I want to make next. And again, I, what I've just spoken about, I've got that balancing act where I've got to think about what I really want to make. And there's always that thing whispering on my shoulder, but will it make money? And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow my heart rather than um, yeah. worry about the cash too much. But it feels like I've got the gems of a few ideas that, you know, are worth pursuing. Um, yeah, watch your space. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on and being our guest this week. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And you too. Thanks for having me.